turn once again to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. <clears throat> and we'll look at jo- Joyful Disciples, part one. Now last Sunday, some of you were in shock at all the blanks you needed to fill in. Well, a little relief this morning. I've left you lots of room to make your own notes, okay? In our last study, we finished with Stay Focused on His Joy. Uh, That was last Sunday evening. Uh, We talked about five ways to draw closer to Jesus Christ. Drawing closer to Christ should be the most important thing in our lives as believers, no matter how long you've been saved. Today, I want to spend some more time on this idea of being joyful, focusing on the joy of the Lord, which we are told is our strength in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. Now, the distinguishing characteristic of a true believer through the centuries, I think, has been joy. I realize that love distinguishes us as well. But love is an action in biblical terms rather than simply an affection as we think of it in our 21st century. Uh, The world will know we are Christians by our love, which is an affirmation that our faith is genuine. Joy, on the other hand, is not so much an action as a whole attitude and demeanor of life. And it shows up in our countenance. That's this right here, okay? Shows up in our voice. Shows up in our eyes. And it pulsates through our daily attitudes. Now, love acts, joy radiates. And this is how I would distinguish them. Both are important traits for a Christian. You cannot uh, think about having one without the other. Love confirms that your joy is real. Now many will mask the religious practices of Christians by singing the hymns, they offer the prayers, they preach the sermons, they speak the right words. But you know, true joy in the Lord cannot be masked. It's an exuberance in Christ that explodes beyond the soul to affect the entire person. Cannot be hidden by dire circumstances cannot be duplicated by clever formulas. It knows no boundaries. You see, joy in Christ has been seen in the poorest uh, places in this world, as well as the finest palaces. It's at home on every continent. It testifies constantly of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the joy evidenced in Paul and Silas while they were singing and worshiping in the uh, Philippian jail, that humbled a proud jailer. Joy in the Lord marked the testimonies of countless Christians who died at the hand of executioners throughout the pre- and post-Reformation Europe. Unfettered joy in knowing and abiding in Christ sets believers apart during the days of the first and the great second great awakenings. Joy is a redemptive gift of Christ. It's a facet of the Spirit's fruit. It's a promise guaranteed by our Lord. And in practice of Christian joy, we demonstrate the characteristics of real disciples. Christian joy is both a present possession 
and a growing experience. Now, when you summarize our text this morning, we are forced to consider uh, verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy may remain in you, might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Now, the words, these things, that has a reference to what has already been spoken, the truths of abiding in Christ, particularly the practical applications that are found in verses 7 through 10. So what's the big deal about joy? Well, it's one of those terms like love that defies a simple definition. But you know it if you experience it. Joy is chiefly experiential. It comes as a result of knowing that you have been forgiven of your sins and that your eternal debt due to your sin has been forever paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can we not rejoice and be filled with joy at the knowledge that our sins have been forgiven? A joyless Christian. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? A joyless Christian. It's what we call an oxymoron. You say, that's a big word. Okay. It's kind of a self-contradictory effect there. You know, like cruel kindness or make haste slowly. They just don't go together. And joyless and Christian don't go together. When we look at Jesus Christ and we see what price he's paid for us so that we might enjoy the glories of God forever, there is an overflow of joy. And when we look beyond the world and we think what lies ahead of us, there is unfettered joy. The assurance of our salvation brings joy. To have a seal of the Spirit in assurance and the witness of the Spirit confirming our salvation can only produce joy in our lives. And to grow in holiness, that is to continue on in sanctification, that causes joy in the believer. Someone has said, the more holiness any man has, the more he shall enjoy him in whose presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 16 verse 11. And the more any man enjoys the presence of God with his spirit, the greater shall be his heaven of joy in this world. Divine joy ebbs and flows as holiness ebbs and flows. Now here in our text, we find that there are two truths concerning joy, which we need to see as we approach this subject of joyful Christians. First, The joy of Jesus Christ is the present reality of the true believer. The joy of Jesus Christ is the present reality of the true believer. He says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. Now you go back to the truth of the vine and the branches, which is in our context here. And all that is in the vine flows into the branches. All of the life, the strength, the energy, the power, and yes, Joy that is necessary to live the Christian life, to obey his uh, commands and his demands, to fulfill the purpose of the redeemed comes from the vine, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to stop and consider for a moment the joy of Jesus Christ, the very joy that originates in him, the joy that he knows from obeying the Father, the joy of his fullness, the same joy is yours and mine in Christ. Now, what is the joy here that he speaks about? Is it merely joy that he will produce in them? The joy of which he's author? 
Neither is it joy which he feels on their account, but the joy which he experiences in knowing that he will be the object of the Father's love. Sometimes we have a mental picture maybe of Jesus Christ. You know, it's it's sometimes that picture of Christ is uh, kind of tainted by some of the artists who've, who've tried to depict the Lord Jesus. We don't know what he really looked like. There were no pictures that were taken. And uh, so we really don't know. But we kind of have this image sometimes in our minds that's, that Jesus Christ was kind of sullen. He was kind of uh, uh, almost uh, a frown of seriousness always on his face. But you know what? The Christ of the scriptures is totally different than that. He was full of joy. His times with the disciples, I believe, were joyful times. Time of ministering to the multitudes were joyful. Even when he faced the agony of the cross, he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 13, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. How could he even be thinking of joy at such a time of great burden, great sorrow? Well, it's because joy was a part of his nature. It was a constant characteristic of his life. And it's the joy that he has given to us. And through his great redeeming love. There's another truth here, and that is Jesus said that he wanted his joy to be so real in our lives that our joy might be full. Jesus said that he wanted his joy to be so real in our lives that our joy might be full. Now this is so important for us to see. I think in this statement our Lord reveals the fact that joy is something that will grow and will increase in our lives. As joy increases, so does our assurance, so does our testimony, so does our ministry, so does our comfort in this world, and so is our anticipation of heaven. It's the second aspect of the Lord's statement on joy that we want to focus in uh, our attention this morning. The joy is present in the believer because Christ is our vine. But joy can grow, it can develop to a greater fullness as we put into application these truths of abiding that are found in our text. In a sense, joy is a glorious byproduct of abiding in Christ. Now, do you know the joy of Jesus Christ this morning? Does his joy show forth in your life? Listen, if there is no joy, then you need to reconsider your spiritual condition. If joy is occasional or intermittent, then we need to learn some simple truths from our text here this morning. As we abide in Christ, first of all, we must joy in asking. Joy in asking. After explaining the relationship of the vine and the branches, as well as instructing on the reality of true and false branches, the first thing our Lord commands us to do is to pray. Now, I've heard it put that prayer is the life breath of the Christian. And indeed, a prayerless Christian, I think, is a false Christian. For prayer is evidence of our relationship to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who don't don't have any need to pray, nor any interest in prayer, are those who do not really have a relationship with the Father through the Son. Look at verse 7. 
Verse 7 says, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Uh, We have three aspects here of the life of prayer. Number one, the conditions of prayer. Yes, there are conditions to prayer. And our text points out two simple but very essential conditions to genuine prayer. First, Jesus said, If ye abide in me. Then second condition, and my words abide in you. It is when these conditions are fulfilled that we're ready to pray. You know, prayer is kind of a popular thing to talk about these days. Uh, not too long ago, there was a film or a movie made called Prayer or War, uh, Prayer, excuse me, War Room. I'll get it right yet. I do not recommend that film, that movie to you. I have not seen it in its entirety, but I know enough about it that it's not a film that's going to be very edifying. Number one, the music is going to be terrible, okay? And it's gone. One of those oxymoron things is Christian rock doesn't go together, okay? But prayer prayer is kind of a popular thing to talk about. You know, you hear this on the news. Our prayers and thoughts are with you. Unsaved people praying for other unsaved people. Does God really hear their prayers? Yes, maybe they're thinking about them. They wish the tragedy wouldn't have happened to them. And sometimes we as Christians say, well, I'll be praying for you. Do we? Do we actually then go ahead and pray for one another? I think that's something we need to look at very carefully. I've heard that studies have been done, even by the medical profession, that shows that prayer is good therapy for a patient's mental and physical health. Even unbelieving doctors are telling their patients to pray. But is God hearing their prayers? Is this the kind of prayer that our Lord is speaking of? You know, to talk about prayer, that's that's a good thing, you know. The only prayer that God hears from an unbeliever is the prayer of asking forgiveness of sin and, and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. I propose to you that the kind of prayer really that's popular today is nothing more than kind of a sort of self, self-hypnosis or an emotional cleansing. A person can call upon a higher power with his troubles and he can bemoan his guilt and with a false faith think that, well, everything's Okay. He may even feel better because he's done something that's quite religious. He's prayed. He knows by virtue of the conscience of God has put in man that there is something and someone greater than him and he must acknowledge him. So he prays. But the focus of his prayers are very self-centered rather than God-centered. True praying focuses on God and his glory rather than selfish indulgence. You know, we must remember that the Muslims pray. They pray to Allah. Buddhists pray, and they chant. The Hindus pray, and yet none prays in truth or to the glory of God. I read about one prayer that appeared in a classified section of a newspaper that illustrates this idea of using prayer as kind of a lucky rabbit's foot. It's called Prayer to St. Jude. 
goes like this. May the sacred heart of Jesus be adored, glorified, loved, and preserved throughout the world now and forever. Sacred heart of Jesus, pray for us. St. Jude, worker of miracles, pray for us. St. Jude, help for the hopeless, pray for us. Say this prayer nine times for nine days, then publish. Your prayer will be answered. It has never been known to fail. Thank you, St. Jude, for your favors received. Is that the prayer that God's talking about here? Is that biblical praying or is that pure superstitious? Obviously, through, though this prayer person may be quite earnest and might be sincere, they're showing superstition and false understanding of the work of prayer. Prayer is not a good luck charm for getting your way. Prayer is the heart abiding in Christ with Christ's words abiding in you, uttering the soul's needs before the Father. Again, look at the conditions for prayer here. If ye abide in me, our Lord states as the first condition for prayer, we have already seen that this refers to a true relationship with Christ, one of being vitally in union with Jesus Christ as the vine. It's a relationship of faith in which you've trusted Christ and his merits for you alone for your salvation. Your confidence is not in your works of righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Your dependence is found in knowing Him. You can honestly say, He is my life, my joy, my everything. Notice also that our Lord stated a second condition. And my words abide in you. Now this second condition must be fulfilled in order for prayer to be effective. We've already seen back in verse 3 where Christ told His disciples they are clean because of the word which he spoke to them. Now, word there, the word in the Greek is logos, refers to the whole of the gospel applied to the life of the believer. It's totally the saving work of Christ, which we proclaim concerning him. But here in verse 7, he uses a little bit different word for word. And it specifically applies to the teachings of Christ. Now remember what we said last week, if you were here. My words refers to all that Jesus taught. But since all of the Old Testament was written to point to Christ, as it says in Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in verse 44 it says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So not only does the Old Testament point to Christ, but also all the New Testament points to him, letting his words abide in us, meaning being at home with him being at home with the Bible. Now, sta- now, this statement is an exhortation for us to understand the specifics of Christ's teachings, as well as that of the Scripture as a whole. You know, as we read and we meditate upon the Word, we find ourselves digesting the Word as a part of our lives. So then we are urged to pray. These truths which come to us from Scripture bring us to prayer and promises for us uh, which we humbly make our own promises or claim our own before the Father. 
And that's why, as Spurgeon said, only the prayer which comes from God can go to God. You cannot separate our relationship to, of the Word of God and prayer. They go together. You can't just pray and ignore the Word of God. He says, my words must abide in you. I hope you see this truth. If you're going to be effective in prayer, you need to fill your mind with the truths of God's Word. Let the divine utterances flow forth in your prayers. Pray the promises of God with confidence that God hears and God answers. So first of all, we see the conditions for prayer, but secondly, we see the command to pray. We are commanded upon abiding in Christ and His words abiding in us to pray. This means that prayer is to be a part of our lives. It's something which we ourselves do. It's something which we must do regularly as Christians. You can pray for me, but you cannot do my praying. I can pray for you, but I cannot do your praying. Prayer must go forth daily between the child of God and his heavenly father. Let me illustrate this. I have five children. They're all out of the house. Praise the Lord. And they're living their lives in various places. But you know what? They're still my children, aren't they? Now, one of my children may speak to me on behalf of another of my children. Sometimes they do that. But that does not replace the conversation and relationship I desire to have with the child, with that child as their father. You know, it's interesting to see the line of thought before Christ commands us to pray. He affirms that our relationship to him must be sure and that his specific truths must be abiding in us. Then we're ready to pray. You know, this haphazard spirit of treating prayer like a retail catalog is held in check by this qualifier. And my words abide in you. It's when the specific teachings of Scripture are embraced and believed that the believer then is ready to pray. His desires will be restricted by the Scripture lest he prays amiss. And his spiritual desires will be liberated by the Scripture so that the the believer will trust God for the impossible. What do you ask for when you pray? Perhaps I first need to ask, do you pray? And do you pray regularly? Is prayer part of your daily life? Something you cannot do without? Something that overflows in your relationship to the Lord? You know, as Christians, we cannot live without prayer. It's been stated, prayer is not some mystic reasoning after the unknown. It's a response to God who speaks in Scripture, the God who personally acts in the lives of His people. Do you give time to spend daily in prayer to God? Now, if you do pray, then what do you ask for? Asking is a part of prayer. Again, it was, has been said, a prayer which only contains thanksgiving and profession and asks nothing is essentially defective. It may be suitable for an angel, but it's not suitable for a sinner. We are a needy people. And so our Heavenly Father bids us come to Him bringing our needs and our, our deepest desires 
that have been sanctified by his word. Now, as we look at the context of this command to pray, we must be struck by the fact that the whole issue is on our progression as Christians, our constant abiding in Christ. Does it not seem logical that much of our prayer should center around the whole matter of our abiding in Christ? And judging from the next verse, verse 8, it seems the very issue of our bearing fruit for God's glory should be a part of our praying. Perhaps we've been guilty of limiting prayer to physical matters, to the gross neglect of spiritual matters in our lives. Should we pray about our physical needs? Certainly. We should do this. But you know what? Christians ought to be conscious of the fact that the spiritual life has priority over the physical. Our physical lives really are temporal. The spiritual is eternal. We need to give more time and more attention to that which endures for eternity. Maybe a good way to get an idea of right praying is to look at some of the prayers in the Bible. You may want to pay particular attention to prayers of God's people as you read through the scriptures. I think a good Old Testament sample is found in Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 as Nehemiah is informed of the ruins of Jerusalem and its needs. And if you'll turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 with me just for a moment and let's just look at this Old Testament prayer and see how his prayer contains the elements of praise an admiration, adoration, a confession of sin, acknowledging the promises of God. And then you find the request of God's intervention that Nehemiah might fulfill the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Verse 4 tells us that he sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed. And here's what he prayed in verse 5. And and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee day and night for the king of or the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye will turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, and though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Wow, what a prayer. And you notice... 
It talks about knowledge. It talks about wisdom. It talks about understanding. It talks about walking worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him, even bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all might, steadfastness and patience, giving thanks to the Father. Those are all elements of praying. If you turn over to Colossians chapter uh, 1, Colossians chapter 1, and you see this very clearly here in Paul's prayer. Same uh, kind of thing here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and desire that we might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In a few weeks, I trust, we'll be able to look at the Lord's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. But practically speaking, will you take the time to think through more clearly about what you're praying? Both for yourself and for others. Do you pray for those physical and mundane needs, but give greater attention to the spiritual life, to the believer's fruitfulness, to the quality of abiding in Christ, to the character of Christ being evident in those for whom you pray? Rather than, dear Lord, bless John and Susie. You know, that's kind of what our prayers are like sometimes. Dear Lord, bless John and Susie and bless all the missionaries in the cornfield. Amen. I mean, foreign field. We need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we pray the truths of Scripture, which you know are the will of God. Pray as one who is living in dependence upon Jesus Christ. Pray with the fervor of one who knows the life-giving power of the vine. Pray with a confidence that God the Father hears and answers. And then thirdly, notice not only the conditions, the command, but the consequences of praying. Jesus gives the condition, abide in him and his words abide in you. Then he makes a command, ask what you will. Now he promises the consequences of that kind of praying will be, and it shall be done unto you. What a promise we have from the Lord. Stop to consider that the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, the savior who is seated at the right hand of the father, who bids us to pray, promises to answer your prayers. And it shall be done unto you. What a blessing of abiding. That brings joy to the heart of the disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, if prayer was simply a laborious exercise without any promise of an answer, it would certainly rob us the joy. Why would we want to pray? Why would we want to spend so much time for, in prayer if we didn't know it was going to be answered? I think of the uh, devotees of Krishna. They spend hours and hours and hours each day chanting their mantras, their prayers before Lord Krishna. And they have no answers. They have no promises to rest on. They go about with glazed eyes, mumbling incoherent thoughts with countenance of one who's never had joy. 
I think of the devout Muslim who faces Mecca on his knees with his face to the ground five times a day and prays to Allah. But he has no answers to his mechanical prayers. What Muslim do you know that radiates with joy? Instead, his heart is filled with fears and hatred and bitterness and resentment. But you know what? It's different when you're a child of God. The psalmist said it this way, Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures evermore. Psalm 16 and verse 11. Is this not the heart of one who comes before the Lord in prayer and has assurance that God's going to hear and answer prayer? The whole psalm is a prayer that ends with a confession of joy by being in the Lord's presence and knowing the right hand of God responds to the heart cry of his child. So often we pray mechanically because we believe it's our duty to pray. And we don't expect an answer. Abide in Christ. Let his truth abide in you. Pray, believe, and expect that it shall be done. These are days when we need to be more in prayer for the people and be people of prayer. Because the enemy is assaulting us on all sides. The pressures of the world, the temptations are about us, threatening us constantly. The devil is trying to confuse and to intimidate and to dampen our spiritual fervor. We must pray. And we must believe. And we must expect our Father in heaven to answer. You know, knowing that intercessory prayers are mightiest, mightiest weapon and the supreme call for Christians today, I would pleadingly urge our people everywhere to pray. Believing that prayer is the greatest contribution that our people can make. It's the greatest contribution you can make to this church. And I urge you to take time to pray. Really pray. Let there be prayer at sunup, at noonday, at sundown. Even at midnight, when you awake and you cannot sleep, pray. Pray all through the day. Let's pray for our children, for our young people, our older people. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your home. Pray for our church. Pray for yourself. You will not lose the word concern out of your vocabulary. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for those who've never known Jesus Christ and his redeeming love. Do you want to know the joy of Christ in his fullness? Then commit yourself to that kind of prayer that's being talked about here. Are you abiding in Christ? Can you honestly say you have trusted Christ alone for your eternal salvation and that he has committed himself to you in saving power? Are his words abiding in you? Do you think deeply of the truth of God's words so that his truths form the thoughts of your prayer life? cannot separate the word of God and prayer. If you desire to pray effectively, then dig deeply into God's word. Meditate upon it. Saturate yourself with it. Let your prayers reflect the passionate heart of one who loves and knows the word of God.
Do you pray consistently, fervently? It's time to get down to the business of believing prayer. Now, we've just looked at the first point this morning. And so this is to be continued tonight. And I trust you'll be here to hear the second part of a joyful disciples. Let's pray.